The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Okay, take your Bibles, please, the book of Ephesians and chapter 2. Just to remind you, um, not this Sunday coming, which will be September the 1st, but the one afterwards, September the 8th, uh, we're going to have a, kind of a special night. Uh, Peter is going to share his testimony of how the Lord saved him and then tell us a little bit more about what the Lord's been teaching him and leading him through in the last uh, months and over a year now, I think. And also, uh, Cameron's going to bring a short message. He's doing a sermon for Bible College, and so he's going to share it with us that night as well. So not this Sunday night coming, but the one after, September the 8th. Encourage you, uh, come on out and encourage other folks in the church to come on out as well. And uh, encourage our brothers. There we go. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read from... Verse number 1 all the way down to verse number 22 is just going to give us a good base to start our study in uh, what we believe about the church. And so Paul is writing and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind, of the body, sorry, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast, for... We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That passage is one of the greatest passages to kind of summarize how the church works. And, and it gives us a good base to understand what we're looking at in uh, what we understand, what we believe about the church. Now, before I even start, i got to give credit where credit's due. Uh, Wayne Grudem and Grudem Systematic Theology. If uh, you wanted to go there and look up, I can't remember which chapter it was exactly. You can read through and you can see Nelson's plagiarizing. Well, not because I'm giving full credit to Wayne Gruden before I even start, so it's not plagiarism. But uh, he lays it out so well and so clearly. And so what I've done is I've just used his outline and structure and then filled in a lot um, and rearranged a little bit of it because I found it not quite flowing the way I wanted to. The other thing about it is it's so long that if we kind of went through it the way he did, it would just take hours. And now... The church is one of my favorite topics in theology, so I can stand here all night. I, I don't, only got a few hours sleep last night, but I've had about six cups of coffee this afternoon, so I'm wound up and wired, and we can go all night, but we're not going to. Don't worry. Uh, there is six questions, six questions we're going to ask and answer, uh, not all tonight. Probably we'll ask and answer two or three tonight and the others next week because it's just too much to go through. Uh, first of all, number one, how and where does the church begin? And we'll see that in the Old Testament. Secondly, how does the church describe the Israel and church relationship? And there's a lot of debate over that one, so we'll go through that one slowly and kind of work our way through and understand some of the arguments and how it works. And thirdly, how does the New Testament describe the church? I want, if we can, to get there because that's where there's some great application that I want us to take away with us. Next week, we'll look at what are the marks of a true church. Is everybody out there that calls themselves a church really a church? And the answer is sadly no. Not everybody out there that calls themselves a church is one. Uh, number five question, what is the relationship of the church to the kingdom? There's a lot of discussion and debate about that. We'll look at it and get the best understanding we can and the last question we'll ask at the end of next week is, what is the purpose of the church? Having said all of that, starting at the beginning, how and where does the church begin? Or where does it begin from? We believe from the scriptures that the church had its beginnings in the Old Testament. And what's happening now is we are being observed, even as we stand or sit here and worship together by the Old Testament saints. Now, all throughout Scripture, God has called people out and gathered people to himself. One of the things you got to keep in the back of your mind, if you're here on Wednesday evening, uh, last week I think it was, and the week before, Wes asked you a great question. He said, what was the Old Testament translation into the Greek? What's it called? Anybody remember that word? 
Septuagint, that's right. Uh, you might see the little, little uh, LXX in some of your books. That's what it means, Septuagint, the 70. And that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Here's another question for you. The New Testament writers, when they're writing the New Testament books, what version of the Old Testament did they draw on to use as reference? Hebrew or Greek? Uh -huh. Very good. From the Greek. Our Old Testament, in case you're wondering, is translated from the Hebrew because that would be the original documents that they were written that way. But the New Testament writers all wrote translating from are using the Greek version of the Old Testament. And the word in Greek or in, in the New Testament for the church in Greek is the word ecclesia. And it means gathered out ones, called out ones, a gathered group or a summoned group. And everybody who I grew up with would say, there's no mention of the church in the Old Testament. Well, actually, no, that's not true. Because the church is mentioned all through the Old Testament. Even the word church, ecclesia, the, Old, the New Testament writers, as they're reading their Old Testament scrolls in Greek, they would have seen ecclesia all over the place. And say they use the same word in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, to describe the people of God. So the people of God were always God's called out people. Right back in Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and so on. He makes all those promises to Abraham and he calls Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, leave his people, the moon worshippers, which is what they were, and go and follow God all the way to the land of Canaan. He had no idea where they're going to end up. He just followed by faith. Uh, Stephen uh, stands up in front of the whole Sanhedrin and he makes a speech about the Old Testament. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, he says, This Moses, who was in the ecclesia, the congregation, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to Moses and so on, spoke to the Mount Sinai and so on. But what he's saying is Moses was a part of the Old Testament church or congregation, okay, people of Israel. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 10, Moses is giving his sermon explaining the whole law, and he says how that on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and the Lord said to me, and a literal translation is, summon the church of the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me. So even God, as he's speaking about the Old Testament people, says they're a church. They're a called out group. What's that? What's doing that? Oh, okay. There we go. As long as I don't go anywhere, we'll be fine. Um, no, that's not. Hopefully that'll work better. Uh, as he's talking about them, he's saying, listen, they're the church of my people. So we believe that the church are all those people in all times and in all places for whom Christ died to redeem and Christ died to save. Okay, So everybody from the Old Testament, the very beginning, the very first believer in God, one who had faith in God, he's a part of the church. Uh, Abel is the first man in heaven, right? Because he was the first man to die. He, by faith, offered a better sacrifice than Cain and so on. So he would be included all the way to the very last person who is to believe in Christ before the Lord returns. So we believe 
But the church is the sum total of all those people. Um, the Bible says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Jews and Greeks together are included in that one group of people who believe. Um, the Bible talks about in Ephesians 5 verse 25 how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who were those people in the church? Anybody who believed in Christ and repented of sin. And so that includes the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. Uh, present day church is being watched over. This is what a cool thing. Uh, being observed by the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints and all the saints through church history, all gathered in glory with Christ. And it's kind of like we're in the middle of a stadium and we're living our life for Christ. And in the bleachers, the stands on both sides, all these Old Testament saints, right? You got Spurgeon over there in the smoking section and you've got Moses up there on one side and you've got Joshua over there and they're all kind of looking on and the cool thing is they're all cheering us on that we would run the race uh, by faith in God and finish the race well uh, all those men can you imagine that that's that spot you know Paul's talking with you know Jan Hus or uh, maybe Martin Luther is discussing things with uh, John Calvin and maybe Zwingli and, and some other guy are sitting together and they're all talking and they're all, all these saints from all through history, all those saved by uh, Christ's blood. Uh, just quick note, saints, you hear they use that word? I don't mean like St. Christopher, the patron saint of something else. I don't mean anything like that. I mean saints, we are all who believe in Christ. We're saints. It just means those who are called to be holy which we are. If we have faith in Christ, we have been declared right in God's sight and so on. Um, Hebrews 12 talks about that great cloud of witnesses that gathers around us. Uh, moving on. Uh, how does the Bible, number two, describe the church in relation to Israel? Now, the Old Testament deals mostly with the people and the nation of Israel. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Genesis chapter 11, God is dealing with all the nations en masse. And then in Genesis chapter 12, he calls one man out to come with him. And from that one man, he then eventually, as you know the story, builds a nation. So he's dealing with all the nations for his first 11 chapters. But then it's in Genesis 12, all the way right through into the New Testament, God is primarily, emphasis on that word, primarily dealing with the Old Testament Jews and the nation of Israel. I say primarily because scattered all over the place, you're going to see references to the nations, all nations, even Solomon, right? He's dedicating the temple, stands up on this big box, and there's all these people around him and the temple behind him. And he kneels down and he says, oh, Lord God, even when the nations turn towards this place and pray and seek forgiveness, hear their prayer and forgive. So many of the Old Testament Jewish Israelite saints understood more that it was more than just them. It was all for all nations, okay? Uh, so the Old Testament deals primarily with the nation of Israel. Uh, we believe that the church includes both Old Testament and New Testament believers, those who had faith in Christ. And you say, how is it possible for an Old Testament Jew, people from Israel, to have faith in Christ? They haven't seen, they haven't heard about him, they haven't heard the gospel. 
Well, from Genesis chapter 4 and 3, sorry, uh, God promised one day there would be a seed. One day there'll be one who will come, who will deal with the serpent. There'll be one day this promised son. Uh, Abraham has promised a son. Isaac comes. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. Isaac, who is the son, and then Jacob, sorry, gathers all the 12 sons together around the bedside, and he makes a promise. One day a king is going to come. David grows up, and what does he hear? There's going to be kings from your line for perpetuity. There's a king coming. And all through the Old Testament history, that's just pointing forward constantly. And yet the New Testament and John chapter 1, like we saw this morning, and John the Baptist says, there he is. That's the one. We've been waiting for him, and he's finally here. All right. So the Old Testament saints had faith in God that he would keep his promises, that the promised one would one day come. That's how they have faith uh, in Christ as is. Uh, we believe that the church includes both Old Testament and New Testament believers. We also, or I also believe that at some point in time, there'll be a large scale conversion of Jewish people to saving faith in Christ. But a lot of people trip over this. They say the nation of Israel will be saved like back in the old times. That's not what it means. It means just like a large portion of, say, the aboriginals are saved and brought into the church or a large portion of people in China are saved and brought into the church. So at some point in time, there's going to be a large portion of Jewish people who will be saved. And Paul says in Romans 11, um, where does he say it? Here it is. Romans 11, 25 and 27. He says, um, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So all the Gentile peoples that are going to be saved are saved. And he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So Israel there, that term doesn't just mean the, the Jews, the people of the nation of Israel. It means the wider understanding of the word Israel. And the wider understanding of the word Israel is the church. Right. So people say, well, you're 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 spitting on the people of Israel. No, I'm not. I'm just saying that our understanding of who Israel is often is too narrow. We see it as just the people of the Jews. But as we're going to see in a minute from a lot of texts that the, the term Israel in the New Testament includes a much bigger portion of people, including all those who have faith in Christ. So when he says, and so all Israel will be saved, what he means is the Jews, just like the Chinese and the Australians and the, the Arabs and wherever else they're coming from, as they're all included in that church, the full number of what's called Israel will be made up. Uh, Paul saw that being truly Jewish was not an external physical thing. Okay, The Jews say, we are of the circumcision. So all those males who are circumcised, that makes us Jewish. And Paul said, no, no, no. In Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, he says, For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So being a Jew to Paul wasn't a matter of race and physicality. It was a matter of God's work in your heart 
to make you a new creature in Christ. In Philippians 3, verse 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision. Who's he talking to? The Philippians. Who are they? Jews or Gentiles predominantly? Yeah, Gentiles, exactly. They're in Europe, right? So predominantly Gentiles. So he's saying we, in other words, me, I'm a Jew, and Gentiles over there, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, the Jewish God stands up and says, I'm a part of God's kingdom because I'm circumcised and I'm Jewish. Paul says, no, you're trusting in where you were born. You're trusting in your race. We glory in Christ. We have our hope is purely and only in Christ Jesus. Um, the Bible also says that Abraham is the father of all who have faith in God. Romans 4, he says this. Um, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal or a mark of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So if you understand Abraham's story, he believes God over here in, in Genesis 15. Two chapters later, in Genesis 17, he receives the mark of circumcision. So the circumcision was an outward display of what was already inwardly there. Right? Okay. Um, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So Abraham believed first. And everybody who has the faith of Abraham is included as a descendant, an heir of Abraham. Um, Romans 4, 16 to 18 says this. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So what Paul is saying is. It's wonderful if you're born a Jewish man and you're circumcised or you're a Jewish woman and you come to faith in Christ. Praise God, you're a descendant of Abraham. And just as surely as Nelson over in Canada who comes to faith in Christ, who is a Gentile and he trusts God and repents of sin, we're bound together. We're both brothers and sisters, as it were, of uh, each other and descendants of Abraham, Abraham's children. Uh, Romans 9, 6 to 8. Here is a... a very powerful statement about this whole Israel thing. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. He's talking about why the gospel's gone to Gentiles. And he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And you say, that sounds like double talk. What do you mean, Paul? What he's trying to say is, the nation of Israel included both believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, right? So Israel as a spiritual entity included Jews and Gentiles, and Israel as a physical entity had just Jewish people by race. So he's saying not all, let me read it again, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, meaning not all those who are physical descendants of Abraham actually have the faith of Abraham. Therefore, they're not included in the spiritual people called Israel. Um, Romans 9.25, he says, uh, quoting Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Who were the, old, who was the people of God in the Old Testament? Yell it out. Israel, yeah. 
Who were not my people in the Old Testament? Everybody else. Yeah, so all the other Gentile nations, they were all excluded from Israel because of their race. But then God says in Hosea, there's going to come a day when all those people who were not my people, they're going to be included and be part of my people. And he says, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. In Galatians 3, 28 and 29, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean that there's no gender in Christianity? You should all be doing this. No, that doesn't mean that at all. Of course there's gender. Does he mean that there isn't actually Jew and Gentile in Christianity? No, he doesn't mean that. What he means is those divisions and distinctions are pulled apart and we are now one in Christ. We are now brothers and sisters regardless of where we came from. And praise God, we have Jewish brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and they trust him and they have faith in him and they repent of sin and they're brothers in Christ just as surely as you and I are. And we're not Jewish. Um, he says, uh, Ephesians 2, read it before. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the most desperate position any of us could be in. Completely cut off, separated, pushed away, out of the way. And then he says, um, having no hope in the world, but now, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, the blood of Jesus is what binds us, Jew and Gentile, together to make us one people in Christ. So how does Israel and the church work? Israel is a spiritual entity, which includes all those who believe in Jesus Christ and all those who have repented of sin. Uh, another way you can understand this is we've been included in the new covenant promises. One of the reasons why, if you listen when we do communion, I often read that passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that talks about this is the new covenant in my blood. Why do I read that all the time? It's to remind us that we have been included in the covenant promise that was made to Israel. Uh, Hebrews 8 talks about, uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Who with? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. What's he talking about? Where does that come from? Anybody know that old new covenant promise? I know you know. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 and 31, that, those couple of verses in there. That's a great promise of the new covenant, right? So the new covenant is made in Christ. It's his blood of the covenant that has been shed for us. But he makes that covenant very pointedly. If you go back to Jeremiah 31 and you read there, I think it says three different times in very emphatic language, the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, the people of Jesus defines it over and over again. This is with Israel. And then he comes to the New Testament and he makes a covenant and we're all included in it. 
right? That's, that's one of the, the, most, the amazing things about the book of Hebrews is it drives that point home again and again. Listen, the people of God are now described as Israel, including Jew and Gentile. Uh, moving on. 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 26. I mentioned before, we often say this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Peter describes the church of Gentiles and Jews with terms specifically quoted from the Old Testament about Israel as a nation. Now, this is neat. You want proof that we're included in this. He says in 1 Peter 2, I've read it lots of times, uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Well, those phrases, those descriptive phrases, he's talking about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He's applying them, quoting them, and applying them directly. Who is First Peter written to, Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Yeah, it's... it's because he quotes so much of the Old Testament to, to point them back. But he also talks. You want to, I'll give you some proof of that quickly so you don't think I'm just overriding you. Take your Bibles, flip to 1 Peter. <laughs> as soon as I find it. There it is. Yeah, that's another proof of what he's trying to say, too, that it's written to the dispersion, but also written to um, a people that are now included as part of that idea of a dispersion of the Jews are spread abroad. There is a verse in here. I'm going to find this. Yeah, here we go. Take your, Look at uh, 1 Peter 1. Yeah, verse 14 is one part of it, and there's more yet. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What is he talking about? The lustful passions of the Gentiles. He's not talking about the Jewish practices, because he wouldn't say that to a Jewish person. It doesn't make sense. Uh, moving over, let me find this for you. Yeah, if you notice in verse 10... He, what I just read, he says, once you were not a people. Well, if he was speaking to Jewish people, he wouldn't have said that either because they were the people of God, right? He said, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have. Uh, there's also another one here too I want to find for you. There's a, he talks about, yeah, here it is. Go, go to chapter 4. About chapter 4, he says, uh, yeah, verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passionless, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, what he's saying is the time has passed. You had enough time before you were a believer to do all those things, those Gentile idolatries and stuff, and now that's over, 
in this time, you're now the people of God. So when he calls them in, uh, to those elect exiles of dispersion in verse 1, that's a key phrase because the dispersion, as you know, is spoken to the Jews who are spread across Asia Minor and all those areas. And so what Peter's doing is he's using a key phrase that the Jews understand. And he's actually reinforcing the idea that they are now included as God's people. All right? Um, moving on. Uh, those, that description phrase in uh, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter 2, he picks up and he's quoting from Exodus 19. He says, uh, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Uh, in verse in First Peter, he calls them a people for his own possession. It's a quote from the Old Testament. He talks about how they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In First Peter 2, he's saying exactly the same thing. So Peter is quoting Moses' description of the people of Israel, and he's saying, listen, Gentiles, you're now part of that. Right? So he's, in, he's showing how we're included in it. So we believe that the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who through faith and repentance are saved by God's grace into one body called Israel. Uh, Galatians 6, 15 and 16 says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In other words, Jews need to be saved as surely as Gentiles need to be saved. And as for all who walk by this real rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, I have some wonderful dispensational brothers and sisters in Canada, and, and we've had some great good fellowship and discussion over this. They would see this as Israel and the church are completely distinct and separate. I just, I just cannot see that in Scripture. It's just not there. And one of them, God bless him, he said, he goes, I know where you're going to go. He said, Galatians 6, the Israel of God. And I said, yeah, what do you do with that? And he said, that was his answer. He goes, I really don't have an answer for that. I can't explain it. I said, well, I think it's fairly easy. And God bless you for doing Isaiah on Wednesday nights because on Wednesday night we're in there studying in 52 and 53 there. And we, you gave us a verse to read from Isaiah 49, and I just kept reading a little bit beyond where you gave us, and this is what I came up with. Isaiah 49.3 says this. He, as you know, he's speaking of the suffering servant, and it's the suffering servant speaking, and he said, He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Who is the suffering servant? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Messiah, Christ. He is the suffering servant, and, and he says, you are my servant, and calls himself Israel. So Jesus is, in that sense, the true Israel of God, and we who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile together, are called that same name. So then why do we have the name church? Well, church is just a name to describe what we've been called, we've been summoned, so we are the church, okay? Moving on. Jesus Christ is the true Israel of God. Having said all that, there's more discussion and more argument you can have over Israel and the church and how they fit together. But that basically tries to explain that they are, in fact, uh, one group. Uh, thirdly, how does the New Testament describe the church? We begin with Christ and his body. We believe that Christ is the head over his church, his body. You know these already. Ephesians 1, that Christ is the head over all things to the church. 
We believe that Christ is the Savior of His church. 1 Timothy 4.10 For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. Who's He talking about? Christ. Right? Uh, Acts 2.47 Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord... Sorry, I jumped here. Sorry. We believe that Christ is the one who gathers in his elect and builds his church. Who's building this church here? Us? Not us. No. Praise God it's not left to us. I mean, we're a helpless, hopeless bunch of people. We're just saved by grace. And praise God that he uses such broken, cracked, and flawed tools, dulled and blunt, but he's building his church. Matthew 16, 18. Uh, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, who's he talking about? Who is the rock? Yes, very good. Uh, Peter, as you know, in Greek, Petros, means rock. Yeah, it means rock. And so it'd be easy to think, like the Catholics do, God bless them, they got it a little bit twisted. They thought when he said, you are Peter, and on this Petros, I will build my church, they thought, oh, he means the apostle Peter. No, that's not what he meant. He meant on this rock who is himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a hope for us, is it not? The fact that this church is being built not by us. We preach the gospel. We love people. We share the gospel. We take tracts out. We try and do everything we can to spread the good news. And I don't, I don't preach the gospel in the faint hope that some might believe and be saved. We preach the gospel in the sure hope that God will save some because he promised he would and he will build his church. Uh, This is all review for most of you. You know this stuff. Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number. We don't have to worry about playing fancy tricks and faint and switch and all this kind of stuff and smoke and mirrors to try and get people in the church. Uh, suck them in with some fancy program because the Lord will add to our number as He chooses, when He chooses. We faithfully preach the gospel and leave that to Him. We believe that the invisible church is presently contained within the visible church. Okay, two ways to see the church. You remember the story uh, Jesus talks about He sows wheat And he goes out there and he looks out and all there's wheat and weeds growing up together. And the servant says, oh, master, should I go out there and pull all the weeds out? And Jesus says, no, 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 leave it alone. Lest when you pull up the weeds, you pull out the wheat while you're at it. Leave it all. On the day of judgment, when we go in and we harvest everything, I will go through and I will pick out wheat on one side and wheat on the other. And I will separate. So the church that we know, going right back to Genesis chapter 3, it's always been a mixed group, right? Even Abram shows up. Abram leaves Ur of the Chaldees, takes Sarah's wife, and who tags along? Lot and his wife. Was Lot's wife a believer? Probably not. She looked back. It's not a sign of faith. As an unbeliever goes with her. All through the history of the Jews in the Old Testament Israel, there are believers mixed with unbelievers. Coming to the New Testament, the church of we in the day is every single person in this room on Sunday morning a Christian, a believer in Christ, genuinely? The answer is no, almost certainly not. Why is it we, or somebody here, bangs away about the gospel as often as he can from the pulpit? 
because we preach the gospel in the church so that those who grow up in the church and those who are part of the church and have never truly believed will hopefully, God will open their eyes one day and they'll suddenly discover, I'm not really a believer. I need to believe in Christ. I need to repent of sin and be saved. Uh, I've heard stories about uh, preachers in years gone by thundering away in the gospel and halfway through their sermon discovered and realized in their own heart the Spirit of God convicted them that they weren't a believer <laughs> and they trusted Christ in the middle of their own sermon. I mean, that's a great way to, to live your ministry. Probably better to get saved first, but I mean, it's, you know, to get saved under your own ministry is still a pretty cool thing. So we preach the gospel inside the church and outside the church because the church is a mixed group. There is the visible church, which is the whole group. So if you took a group photograph of Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church out on the grass, all smiling out there, guaranteed in that picture you're going to have believers and unbelievers. And they'd say, well, that's the church, Noble Park Baptist Church. Yeah, it is. That's the group, the visible church called Noble Park. But within that, there are both believers and unbelievers. So the visible church contains the invisible one. The invisible church is the church that God alone can see. And here's where we have to be really careful. We don't want to go looking for unbelievers. Oh, is he a believer? Is he a believer? Not, you know, as dangerous. And it can actually sow problems in the church. But we do preach the gospel, and we know that God can see, and God knows a man's heart, that no one else knows it. Um, Jesus himself described that there will be a mix. Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15 and 16. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Does that mean we're supposed to judge them? It means we're supposed to discern, but we're not supposed to condemn. There's a difference, right? Um, beware of those ones. Uh, Paul said in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy sorry, 2, verses 17 and 19, uh, you're talking about two guys named Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ or names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, God knows. He knows who are his and who's not. Uh, we're running out of time here. Paul said in Ephesians uh, chapter 20, He's talking to the Ephesian church in Acts 20, sorry. And he says, after my departure from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And, you know, some of these men are well-intentioned and they may not even realize that they're not saved. But they are because they're not truly saved. They haven't repented of sin. There's pride. There's all those other issues going on inside. And all of a sudden they rear up and try and lead men away after themselves. And you can see that by their fruits that they're not believers. Uh, many sheep are outside and many wolves are inside the church. Uh, Augustine, an old theologian from the 300s, I believe, spoke that. So we believe that the church is invisible and there's a visible church. The visible church contains both unbelievers and believers. The invisible church that God alone can see contains uh, the true believers. It is 7 o'clock and I much as I really want to get to the last part here about the metaphors that describe the church. Uh, maybe we'll look at just, just one or two of them. We'll call it a day. Uh, the Bible uses all kinds of beautiful imagery to describe the church. The family of God. 
1 Timothy 3.15, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, God describes his church as a family, as a household. Now, what implication does that have for us? And this is good enough for us to leave on. The fact that this church, Nova Park Evangelical Baptist Church, as well as the whole church, is like a family it should increase our love and fellowship with one another. Now that, I don't know about you, but that challenges my heart. Okay? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are brought together. We're blood brothers and blood sisters, regardless of where you come from. It's Christ's blood that makes us brother and sister. And you know... I mean, I'm not the easiest guy in the world to get along with. You should have figured that out by now, okay? And some of you are not that easy to get along with too, so don't laugh. But you know what? We're just going to be together. And here's the reality of it. We're going to be together for all eternity. And there is a relationship that we have that's unbreakable. I was thinking about this the other day. My marriage to the most wonderful woman I've ever met, that's for time. That staggers me. Now, I'm ever so glad that Heather is also my sister in Christ, will be brother and sister for all eternity. But even that great relationship of marriage will stop at death. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we are going to be together for all of eternity. And because we are the brothers and sisters in Christ, because we have been brought together by the blood of Christ, because we've been brought from all walks and places and spaces in life, and God has made us one body, Here's something else to think about. God put the members of this church in this church for his purposes and reasons. It's easy to go, you know, it'd be so nice if we had that guy from over there and we got that guy from over there and we brought them into Noble Park and we made up our church this way. It'd be so cool if we could pick these people and bring them in. And, you know, if we could get rid of that one and that one and, you know, if we could get him out of here, you know, it'd be so much nicer. But the reality is that God is building his church. God is adding the family members. The old saying is definitely true about the church. You can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives, right? Praise God that we're stuck together. Praise God that we have each other as brother and sister in Christ. Praise God that we have the opportunity to show the love of Christ Not just to those outside the doors of this building, but to those inside the doors. In fact, we're called to an even higher calling to love those inside, not just those outside. Does that make sense? Very good. Enough of me talking. Anybody got a question or a comment they want to fire out about the church so far? Yeah, amen. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard at times. I mean, it's it's not a mushy, lovey-dovey, you know, look longing into each other's eyes over a candlelight or something kind of love. It's a love that sometimes endures. I think we've all had, I mean, for those of us who are older and have kids, we love our kids to death, but we don't always like them because sometimes they're little pills, frankly. And 
my three are here. And they, and they say that full recognition of the fact that they're here. We love them to bits, right? But sometimes there's a bit of an endurance involved. And you're right. When brothers and sisters rub us the wrong way. And it always, it happens. And Yeah, amen. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Other comments, questions, thoughts, disagreements? Are you okay? Never mind. Let's uh, let's give thanks to God for a good day, and, and we'll call it done. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that he has and is building his church. And Father, as much as I'm looking forward to the day that I'll be able to stand alongside Spurgeon and talk with Luther and, and, and hang out with John Calvin for a while, and maybe walk beside Jim Elliot, Father, we're, I'm looking forward so much to seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, the one with whose blood we are made, brothers and sisters. And Father, I give you thanks that there is indeed one body, one complete body being formed. And Father, we will have the same relationship with, with Abraham as we have with our Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, in that day, in that coming time when we are all together with Christ, all of those distinctions will be put aside. And Father, we will just be brothers and sisters in Christ together with our great older brother, who is the Lord Jesus himself. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here tonight. Lord, I ask you your special blessing on them. And Lord, too, for the church that couldn't be here tonight for one reason or another. Father, we ask you for your blessing on them. Encourage them and strengthen them. Father, just thinking, too, again of Tina all the way over in Cambodia. And Father, we just seek your blessing for her. We pray, oh God, that you'd encourage her, keep her safe, oh God, bring her back home here to safety in a couple of weeks. And Father, we pray that her time over there might be greatly used of you to encourage her. Father, we thank you for these things. We give you thanks again for our evening and our day together in, in worship and in singing and the meeting this afternoon and how well that went. Lord, we thank you. And we give thanks in all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.